right, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to episode five of the New World Signals podcast. I am once again back on my estate in Orange County with my bowl of mint juleps next to me overlooking the Blue Ridge Mountains, and um, it has been a wonderful uh, return after the long trip I took across the United States, uh, a small slice of which was the previous episode of the podcast, which I had with many fine and well-esteemed gentlemen. Um, and I am very fortunate to be joined again by one of those gentlemen who was present on the uh, on the last uh, episode uh, in a more um, uh, in a more personal and a more intimate context uh, because he is the only guest on my show. I would like to introduce a uh, quite literally one of the greatest uh, historians, at least living historians, I have uh, come across in my entire life um, on America and the American consciousness and Americana. Um, who has been making his rounds and his grand return uh, from his long absence uh, recently. I would like to introduce Mr. Christopher Sandbach. How are you doing, Chris? My long absence? My, my long absence? <clears throat> well, for, for really the first thing I feel like we need to talk about is that, that, that mint julep reference that you made. So, so do, you, do, you know, do you know what a mint julep is? I know exactly what a mint julep is. Yes, what's, I've what's, tasted what's, many. What, what's in a mint julep? Some kind of fucking bourbon. I don't know what they Some fucking kind put of in fucking it. Fucking bourbon. Okay, so that's correct. I just, correct, I just, correct. I just, I just, no, I just go to the fucking. <laughs> I go to the bar you're... and I say, "Give me a mint julep," and they give me a mint julep, me and mint I know there's julep. like. What? There's like brown, there's like something about brown sugar and like you, uh, you, uh, fucking brown um, sugar. burn, burn the, um, uh, you burn the mint leaf slightly. You don't have to burn it all the way, but you, you, you burn it slightly and then you throw it in, you, um, you don't it, use a, you, you don't, it, yeah. you don't use a good quality mint leaf though. You have to use a slightly poorer quality mint leaf and it has to be in crushed ice. It can't be in uh, ice cubes. It has to be in crushed ice. So those yeah, are, those are the yeah. general components as to uh as to what makes a mint julep how the how so the how the mint julep got to be the cultural um symbol that it is is a sort of interesting story in fact they weren't even originally made with um uh, with bourbon but the but the substitution of the original brandy out with bourbon is the most important thing that's happened in the history of the mint julep uh, it's important for a couple of reasons. One is that um, brandy was the, I mean, it was the most popular liquor in early 19th century America. And it, it was incredibly popular. You know, this is like this is a time when Americans were consuming something like five gallons of hard liquor, a person a year. Um, Which you can but, read about in the great book, The Alcoholic Republic. Yeah, yeah, that's the classic book on it. But the um, at the time, the mint julep in the early recipes that we see of it, it is a um, it's a woman's drink <laughs> because it's it's taking this already very sweet, you know, very sweet liquor, and it's adding sugar and like mint leaves, and it was considered unmasculine for men to do this. And then what this, the the uh, South adopting the something effeminate. Who would have thought? Yeah, right, right, right. But um, early, as the Scots Irish drifted into the back country, you know, the Scots Irish who had drifted into the back country over the course of, you know, the previous century, 
as they started to get wealthy from growing cotton, which was, you know, only a viable crop from 1792 or so. And, uh, upland staple cotton wasn't didn't come about until a little bit later but um these 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 scots irish you know hicks end up being most of the people who are the planters in the areas that are further away from the you know the 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 coastal environment um that you think of when you think of places like charleston and richmond um and they had as their like their product that was their identity like their their like their like cultural ritual amongst the scots irish people was to drink catatonic amounts of bourbon and um that that is the moment that um men started drinking mint juleps whenever they switched it out whenever they switched uh switched the liquor out for bourbon and it suddenly became uh you know a kind of frontier frontier masculine thing to be drinking and it's remained that way since then. And the reason you used that, you know, the reason you, the reason we are here in 2022, hardly any of us drink mint juleps anymore. But the reason that image still like sits uh, in our mind, despite the fact that almost none of us know this story, is because of, of it constitutes, you know, a part of what we would call Americana, which is that's what we're here to talk about today, I guess. That was a long, long introduction. <laughs> and you, you didn't even you didn't even introduce yourself. You just kind of styled on everyone with your five thousand yeah. IQ and for and completely proved my point as to how you're one of the best historians <laughs> I've ever come across. Because you just went on this five minute extrapolation on a minor offhand comment I made, and it's it's that's that's why that's why I wanted to have you on again, uh, even though you were on last time. And many of the returning listeners yeah. uh, will remember you from last time. Will remember remember. Uh, your deep and, and profound knowledge about New Orleans, um, but as y- you are correct in um, uh, your uh, relation of mint juleps to Americana, because uh, the topic of today's stream and the the sort of open ended question that we're going to spend the next hour or so uh, talking about, to the best of our ability, is uh, what is Americana, right? You know, I. I, I have this podcast. It's an Americana podcast. It's an officially like dedicated Americana podcast. Everyone I bring on knows something about some aspect of America uh, or the American consciousness or the American spirit, even though one of the episodes was about a Canadian rock band, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, but I think the best, the best description at least I have of Americana before I hand it over to you is, is kind of a recapitulation of, uh, the sort of opening monologue I said on the first episode I ever did with Pete Quinones uh, on Francis Parker Yaki, which is uh, America to me is a metaphysical thing. It is it is almost a religious concept, right? America is the city on the hill. That is that is you know people like to make fun of that as some stupid Puritan myth or whatever. I I it, it moves. I, you can't limit that idea to the Puritans. That idea is is beyond any region, any section of the United States. It is, it is the concept. It is the um, uh, the the recreation of a sort of um, uh, of a you know, to use some some late nineteenth century rhetoric, almost a new Zion in the in the Christian context, right? Or a um, uh, 
not necessarily the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven on earth, but the the most upright. Why not? Well, why not? That's well, the I mean, I well, the reason why not? at least the 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 initial reason is that um, um I mean, at least that I would think is that uh, the kingdom of heaven is not meant to be brought down to earth. Though um, uh, I suppose you might you might differ in, in in that, or at least differ in, in the way I'm framing it. But that's that's what I mean by what I think Americana is. Ameri America America isn't. Till, yeah, how's it go? The till we have built Jerusalem and England's green and pleasant land. You know, like that's that and that, that's how that's how this goes, isn't it? Generally, anyway, yeah. When 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 we when we're talking about Americana, there's three really there's because this is a word that's been used to describe a lot of it. It's a word, it came into existence in the early 19th century. Um, and it's just one thing people, somebody I was talking to yesterday said, there's one thing I learned about you is that when you use a word, you mean it in the original sense of the word. So we'll get to that one last. The oldest and then we're gonna do this backwards. The oldest and most original meaning of, of Americana will we'll, we'll handle last. Um, but the first one that I think is worth getting, first one I think is worth looking at is the current uh, Wikipedia definition of Americana. And this is going to be interesting specifically from a perspective of kind of the way Americana interacts with, you know, American politics today. But this is what we're told it is. Um, Americana artifacts are related to the history geography folklore and cultural heritage of the united the united states of america americana is any collection of materials and things concerning or characteristic of the united states or the american people and is representative of or representative or even stereotypical of american culture as a whole and then they got a picture of the statue of liberty a baseball bat so, so and yeah, some apple pie yeah, so this is like, you know, Coca-Cola signs, like uh, Texaco right. gas pumps, you know, the 50s diner, you know, Cadillacs, the sort of right. the, the, the post-war, um, you know, almost what we could call corporate Americana or something to that effect. Yeah, like that kind of stuff you see at like the Cracker Barrel whenever you're waiting, you know, the, the stuff in the... the the uh the gift shop at Cracker Barrel. The last the last <laughs> stand of implicit white identity. I mean, it may be some truth to that. But uh one of the things that it is important to look at about this definition to, to notice about this definition of Americana is how uh totally materialist it is. It fits perfectly in line with a concept of both really Americana uh, with uh, ethnic uh, folk folkways um in 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 one sense but also with the you know the the formal academic study of these things uh and then it also tends to be reductively materialist um so while you know we can kind of agree with that idea of that 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 idea of americana exists it's one thing it's we would all i think agree that this is the operating idea of what americana is and this is a this is a thoroughly left-wing you know cultural anthropology you know you know freshman cultural anthropology class 
um, Boasian anthropology um, description of what Americana is. And it's, it, it's kind of sad that this is a word that has fallen totally into the clutches of the, the, the opposition. And this is an especially astonishing feat whenever we, whenever we consider some of the things we talk about later, which is how actually resistant Americana is to, you know, to, to any kind of politics. So the, the, that it has been so thoroughly captured is not a mysterious fact. You know, D- Dave, the distributor, he talks about this all the time. It's like, you know, uh, he, he won't ever, I don't think he ever uses the word Americana, but he'll talk about like, well, you know, the leftists have taken over, you know, small farming and, you know, family farming and uh, roots music. And, you know, he's not wrong. They have like for any, if you think about anything, the you know, anything ruralite sort of things that the dissident right likes to talk about doing, you know, whether it be, you know, small farming, you know, building your little communities and, you know, growing them up um, outside the system strategies, what a friend of mine used to call them. And uh, you will eventually realize that the left is not only there already, they do it better. And they also have a bluegrass festival every year with like a, like a, like a, you know, a, a, a pie baking contest. And it's, it's cute as fuck. You're like, fuck, how did we lose so badly? Um, and that's the, the, the second definition of Americana tells us how they, uh, how they, they, they seized control of this, this sort of aspect of, of, of American life. And that's through the, the formal music genre Americana, which was, um, and, you know, of course, you can see my profile picture. This is a, you know, a, a form of music that was pioneered uh, and as a formal genre by a lot of 60s bands like the Grateful Dead and um, Jefferson Airplane and uh, oh, who's that? Oh, Flying Burrito Brothers. And they and the the outlaw country music um, movement with Johnny, you know, Johnny Cash and Willie Wait, Nelson. So, so, and all so was people. was outlaw country left wing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you ever heard this song that, that Johnny Cash? Oh, oh, he's got that song. They call him the man in black. You listen to that song, you wonder why I always dress in black. You know, oh, it's you know, I, I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down, living on the hungry side of town. Oh, yeah, of course, it was left wing. You think that you, none of these guys were voting for Richard Nixon, if that's what you mean by left wing? <laughs> so, so wait, so you're you're telling me if the South would have won is a left wing song made by. Mm. Left wing individual. No, I don't. That was that that came a little bit later in the eighties, whenever the boomers were, you know, kind of kind of letting their hair down and rebellion. All of a sudden, again, that you know, the Confederate flag revival of the nineteen eighties is in kind of a strange instance of this, um, which is the, the 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 third, you know, and probably the most important um, definition of Americana, which is that it is. If it is the sort of grab bag or um, repository of myths, images, motifs, I hate to use the word myth, uh, but I think it fits here. Images, motifs, story, stories, um, 
And of course, yes, in some cases, material culture as well um, that have sustained the American people. And they're um, on one hand, they're um, accessible to all Americans. And um, this, of course, begs the question of like, you know, sort of what is, you know, what is an American? Well, there's obviously um, that. 19 post-war 1950s Americana that we were talking about. This is obviously real to somebody. This was a huge moment, a uh, huge realization for me whenever I was out in uh, San Diego one night. It was very, uh, it, was a, it was a cool evening by my standard, of course, from New Orleans. Uh, it was a cool evening, like down in very close to the sea, very close to the seaside. And all these you know, these Mexican dudes and all these old, you know, all these, you know, California greasers, they had all their, you know, they had their hot rod cars or I don't even know what they are. They were like, whatever it is, they do the Chevy Impalas and they were driving up and down the, you know, highway, honking their horns at each other and everything. And I was like, you know, this really is an authentic sort of American folkway. It doesn't seem like it is because it seems like it's, you know, it's just 1950s nostalgia, but I'm like, well, you know, for California, it doesn't go much further back than that. <laughs> So that's the kind of is there. That's kind of their, you know, their their foundation, the the foundation of their culture is, you know, kind of that. I want to make reference to a stream that my uh, other mentor Thomas seven 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 did on uh, with uh, the kid Ace, who's a California guy, and Thomas makes makes two points in that. Uh, number one. California is the conceptual horizon of Western civilization. Um, what that means is that, that Cali- California is the end point of Western civilization. It, yeah. it, 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 at least as of right now, it cannot extend further because it's just the ocean again back into the Orient. Um, yeah. and, and the second thing he said is that even people who have like roots in California, even people whose families came over, you know, as early as, you know, I don't know, the, the, the end of the civil war for the Anglos or the, the few freaking old, old, old stock Chicanos, um, whose family was in, you know, was in California back when the Spaniards had missions there. Um, I, all four of them, I think, but, um, but, even those kinds of people feel sort of rootless. Those people who have been there for a while don't feel like they're from anywhere because they're, they're in this, they're in this uh, end point. And that may be true. That may be true to one extent or another. I do. I do. You will. Okay. Well, I don't know how artificial that is. So I, I, you know, I hesitate to contradict it, but one of the things we can see though, is I think there is obviously, um, a self-implicit hierarchy in Americana, which is that, you know, some Americana is significantly more esoteric than others and of, and available to a smaller swathe of the total American population. So we look at 1950s nostalgia, almost once is one of the reasons why, you know, American conservatives are always being accused of 1950s nostalgia because that's, you know, that's the moment we can go back to um, and sort of think, well, you know, before the before Kennedy was killed, before the immigrate, before immigration happened, before the Vietnam War, it's just it's this last moment where, you know, everything was going kind of ish right, you know, and, you know, 
there's a special there's a continuity yeah there's a special nostalgia for that but and, and it's and it's available to almost every american who is not you know a very recent immigrant so like only recent only immigrants from as recently as the 1960s and so that's you know the that's everybody else to everybody else that america is sort of nostalgic in its own way and it's in in those images from that culture are uh widely usable by you know to convey different uniquely american ideas and concepts like norman norm was norm not not norman rockwell Rockwell. normally i had to think about that Uh, there's a bunch of normans and there's a bunch of rockwells (laughs) but you know there's um but the is a uh, is George Lincoln Rockwell an aspect of Americana? <laughs> well, of course, of course he is. He makes he made it into that song "We Didn't Start the Fire" by Billy Joel. And it's <laughs> a hard hard to imagine anything being more Americana than that. But the um, the point here is that you know the further back in time you move, um, you start running into American concepts that are foreign to persons who have you know who have come here like so like oh take the, the movie gettysburg for instance you know what is there's an italian immigrant from the 1920s a mexican immigrant from the 1980s a jewish immigrant from the 1880s a german immigrant from the 1890s what do any of these people have anything to do with this like like this like that this is a reason that sort of stuff is becoming less popular now it's because um those aspects of like those those you know those ideas of the american experience don't mean anything to you know uh, an increasing majority of americans and so i think that yeah like as i said there's an there's a sort of there's a there's an ascending hierarchy of esotericism to americana to where you know the more of these you know the more the, the longer your family's been here and the more aware of your own history that you are, you have a much wider, um, you have a much, much larger grab bag of concepts that you can use, concepts, images, uh, images and symbols that you can use to portray uniquely American ideas to one another. And that is that those, that collection of symbols, ideas, concepts, narratives not even all explicitly american i've got a substack called esoterica americana and i talk about england all the time you know till we've built jerusalem and england's green and pleasant land is is um, this um the, is this sorry i don't mean to interrupt but there was a yeah. um uh, there was a concept i heard it was from one of the postmodernists called a, a sign regime i don't know i don't know if that came from oh that could be so that could be so many of them but like <laughs> yeah but this like, is so syrian linguistics but, but like a, but like uh that referring to a sort of a, a set of contemporaneous uh, aesthetics and motifs and I guess you could say mental vignettes uh, and vistas um, from a particular from a sort of uh, generally related time period um, or series of events that are kind of evoked as a sort of as a sort of nostalgia for this particular era in one way or another for well no one I don't think that. Another. Because, okay, this is here's one of these things is that you can do is you can take these things out of the past and bring them into the present. Okay. Um, and so, like, it is not totally unusual for like serious heritage Americans to go around trumpeting something called the Monroe Doctrine. 
which, you know, has hardly been applicable in any kind of recognizable sense for over 100 years. But there are still Americans that, you know, that, you know, that their talk about reverting to the America, to the country's, you know, original way of interacting with the world. You know, the Monroe, they're not LARPing like it's the 1830s. They've taken this concept out of the 1830s and, and you know, ripped it whole cloth into in, in you know into the year 2022 and so you know it, it goes definitely has to go deeper than nostalgia you know these are okay so these so are it's, I, it's imposing the reign of the past upon the present damn the present and the current circumstances what we yeah know. yeah in the in the highest sense of the word i think that's what uh, uh, you know americana is you know mm. they have all these other words you know, down here at the bottom, you know, where they're like, oh, they, they where, you know, see, it says see also. Uh, and it has some related concepts. Uh, one of them is communist nostalgia. Um, and another one is Rhodesiana, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like it is. And in Eastern, in East Germany, they have, you know, another sort of similar, you know, uh, nostalgia for, the East German past. I'm not sure if that one's as applicable, but I think the Soviet one is, and uh, the Soviet one is, is especially to Russia. You know, this the Soviet Union is not. You know, it, it's it's the. It would be insane to claim that the Soviet Union is a communist. I mean, that Russia is a communist country today. But um, the specter of the Soviet Union hangs large over Russia and they are perfectly willing to co-opt, you know, a, a, examples of it, you know, of uh, Soviet policy that they perceive as, you know, being, you know, good or they're uh, perfectly willing to, you know, use the great patriotic war as a patriotic rallying cry for, for Russians rather than, you know, rather than for the communist party. Americana kind of functions in a, in, a, in a similar way, you know, for Americans, which is one of the reasons why, again, it, it, it is sort of not good to be losing on this front. And I think Dave is, you know, right to sort of, you know, point out like, you, you know, well, what are we going to do about this? Um, because the things that, you know, that constitute Americana, the image, the images, again, are the things I'm, you know, most um probably are the are the most powerful and you know like like uh signs and concepts like you know Paul Revere's midnight ride or something like that you know what does that mean to you um and can you communicate that 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 meaning to someone else um if those things are absent in an american right um then I'm, you know, how, how are you going to contest that ground? You know, is the, is, 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 is the question that I think, you know, sort of has to be asked. Like, so, so like, like, are you like the, the liberals and they have a very skin deep concept of it or the leftists do, but you know, they're all, even their little captain America means, you know, they'll like, you know, they'll in, in, invaded, you know, United States invaded Germany to kill fascists, and now you know you're like, it's it, even though it's obviously true that we live in a country that is that's whose fundamental values are 
more or less exactly the opposite of what the men and women that stormed Norman stormed Utah Beach in Normandy, you know, thought of as 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 what they were fighting for. The idea, the fact that the left holds that image and they use uh, and and use it, you know, to great advantage says something about, you know, the power of this particular tool, Americana, and, and, and how badly we tend to be, we seem to be losing on that front, which is a, you know, it's a mystery to me. And I think it's, I, I you know, I think it's awful, but yeah. Jeff. A couple of, couple of things on that, actually. Um, I figured you'd have a few. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just, just, no, no, just a couple of things, you know, I mean, on that last point, you know, it's easy for them to win when they have um, uh, all of the money in the world and the entire media apparatus of the world and um, uh, essentially carte blanche to do what they want to program uh, anyone vis-a-vis any sort of um, uh, any sort of weird scripts that they will then impart upon people to sort of make them impose the present on the past, damn the actual circumstances of the past. Um, so yeah, obviously we're losing, but you know, it's like we're playing on fucking immortal difficulty in Civ Six and uh, and <laughs> And we oh. didn't, and they started well, thirty turns ahead of us. But um, uh, second thing. Well, that's true. Okay, second, second, yeah, thing. second thing. You know, um, when I was on my um a trip across the country, I ran when I was in a actually I was in a bookstore in New Orleans. I came across this very curious little pamphlet um, called the um. Uh, the bicentennial anniversary of the first continental congress 1774 through 1974 and it was a record of all of the congressional proceedings of commemorating the bicentennial of the first continental congress which took place in 1774 um there was pictures of the old guard regiment and the fife and drum marching into the halls of congress and and you know people were giving speeches and reading jefferson's words and um, slight references to contemporary political issues were being made. Um, but generally it was a, this was back before politics had started, or the uh, uh, global homo politics had really started seeping into every waking word. You can see traces of it, but this was, this was very much a different time. Um, and then at the end of it, at the second half, there were all these professors giving speeches talking about the, what the origins and the, the, um, purposes of the men meeting in uh, Philadelphia in the actually was it in Phil- Philadelphia anyway not important um, yeah, it was in Philadelphia yeah um, the you second half the, of this, right. the second the half right. of this uh, book is uh, called the ideological origins of the first continental congress of the first continental and, congress that's interesting okay so yeah. you know what that's a me- you know you know what that's a meme of. What is the, that? It's the the book, the ideological origins of the American Revolution. So that's a, and that would have been sometime that that would see that would have been done right around the time of that book's that book's peak influence. But also, it's probably maybe top five greatest books ever written about American history. Yeah, where it's, where it's worth picking up. And and show. I'm I'm sure the points that were made in this essay uh, are just a recapitulation of many of the points made in the ideological origins of the American Revolution. But, you know, the point I got from reading through this, this strange little piece of Americana, um, I probably, probably can't find another version of, at least in the, in the form I have, um, of these minutes, um, it convinced me that 
any sort of American right wing, number one, needs to stop LARPing as anything other than an actual Republican movement. I mean, Republican in the sense of the uh, of the form of government, um, because, you know, it's more traditionalist to be a Republican uh, in the United States than to be anything else. Because right. the United States as a, as a concept unto itself has never not been Republican. Um, and people talk about, oh, king, king, the kings ruled over colonial. No, no, they, they, they didn't. Not really, because the governance was actually done by um, a very similar, um, very similar bodies of men as to Congress. You know, you take the House of Burgesses in Virginia, which is the largest or the, not the largest, the longest continuously operating uh, governing body on planet Earth, even older than Parliament, uh, because it is Parliament has uh, uh, been adjourned. Uh, at certain points, and uh, yeah. the House of Burgesses has been yeah. contiguously meeting. At since. one point, there were there were at one point there was two, arguably three separate parliaments that existed at one time, and then and then poof, there were none, and then yep. <laughs> then, then, then there then there was one again. And, no, and the whole, like, sorry, oh, sorry, I just want I just want to wrap up wrap up this point. Um, and uh, the whole point I realized from reading all of this and considering all of this is that. Any sort of American right wing needs to essentially cloak itself in um, uh, Americana, but the the particular era of Americana it needs to cloak itself in is this sort of revolutionary, colonial, early republic type aesthetics, type mythos, um, holding up the almost almost like uh, the way Colombia does in shock and. Now that was kind of my point. I was driving towards. I think that has the most evocative you know power. Who, but you, um, you know who did this? Use. You know who did this? The so, hippies did it. That's not like that. That they like there's there's no shortage of American colonial revolutionary LARPing going on amongst you know the early hippies that that you know have eventually become you know that was all associated with the anti-war movement, uh, you know, in general, and it was that. It was that ability to appeal to, you know, America's understanding of itself, even though it's only one little slice of America's understanding of itself. Of course, there have always been pro-war people in America. But the fact that I, the, but one of the things that aided the new left more so than any other, well, maybe not than any other, but one of the, one of the many things that aided the new left in their ability, in their you know, in their quest to, you know, sort of, you know, climb, climb up the chain of institutions is that they were very well versed in the mythology of their own country. And they had, they embarked on an incredibly aggressive, uh, aggressive campaign to reformulate American history and and all of them, you know, all of the American past, the American experience, under terms that were favorable to them, and made their and made their particular mission in the world um, seem to be more substantiated. In other words, they were able to speak in terms of concepts that the people who you know we frequently today will derisively refer to as normies. And people on the left do that now as well. I was hanging out with some leftists the other night, and they were using the word "normie." So it's that, that you know that's a problem on both sides of you know, on really maybe on both sides of the uh, equation. It's something that the new left would not have ever really done 
you know, you know, too much. They, of course, they called people squares and that sort of thing. But they, when it came time to do it, they were able to speak very persuasively from the depths of a Jeffersonian anti-war tradition whenever they were making their case, you know, to the American public. And they would even, you know, they would, they would, they would do all the kitsch, the, you know, the, even the, the reenacting and the material nostalgia and everything as well. Um, that's one of the most mis, uh, mis uh, maybe not the most misunderstood, but probably one of the most consistently downplayed um, weapons that the new left wielded in the 1960s and 1970s that we, you know, we, we, we tend not to see it for some reason, but then of course, you know, you go look, well, what are the, the famous conspiracies from the, the Laurel Canyon stuff? Oh yeah. This is the, be this is the beginning of Americana music. Um, there's almost no way to, there's almost no way actually to imagine the new left. So you, you were talking a minute ago about how they have endless money and all this other stuff and everything like that. They didn't always have money. They always had more than the right did. They didn't always have the overwhelming advantage they did that they did now. They had a lot of, you know, structural problems, you know, uh, inabilities to scale up. Um, but that ability to hide inside the language and the symbols that Americans cloak themselves in and the, the little lies that Americans tell themselves, uh, tell themselves about themselves. And they were able to, you know, they were able to utilize that language and that, that concept that we call Americana to, uh, really achieve what can only be described as cultural hegemony, if not economic hegemony in the United States, you know? So that's, that, that's, that's something I think should always be, you know, lo looked at closely. That's again, I think the only person I ever hear talk about this stuff though is Dave. And that's the, I guess, so I was like, you know, huh, guess, guess we'll have to go talk about it now, but you know, this is the, the as much as is an explanation of what Americana is, it's kind of, a, you know, Kind of a kind of a cry to anybody who wants to you know in, to influence the way America thinks about itself. Well, you have to use you know you have to use the language that America uses to think about itself, and that means you know you have to engage in you know you have to re reach into that grab bag of of you know uh, concepts, material items, stories. Uh, it could be weird stuff like William Gilmore Sims arguing that, you know, Greenland, Greenland was in South Carolina. You know, well, what is no, what is the name of that Viking settlement? Vinland. Vinland. Yeah. Vinland. Yeah. The, William Gilmore Sims and uh, uh, that transcendental Yankee, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, arguing with one another about whether or not Vinland was in South Carolina or Massachusetts. You know, that 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 sort of thing. If you can, you know if you can frame the stuff that you want people to think about in terms that you can relate, you know, directly to their people, then you're in way better shape than you are, you know, trying to do anything else. I don't know. That was kind of rambly, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's the important thing about, uh, uh, about Americana. If, if, you know, if we believe that it is what we, you know, that, that what we've been talking about it, it's 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 a weapon cloaked as a not weapon well that's and that's um uh when i was on the trip that's um uh the point i was making when i talk about revolutionary war symbology I, although i suppose you could extend it to uh, yeah, really not it, just not just revolutionary war but it's um the reason i chose that period specifically was um uh 
the symbology is inherently apolitical in its existence, but also it's inherently nativistic in its existence. And it could be very easily memed into being such, at least, um, at least in the, in the modern time, the same way that the, that the new left memed memes sort of America as this conceptual nation, as this, uh, you know, the, the same thing with the nation of immigrants meme, that was something they did. The same thing with the, um, uh, you know, they were they were able to take this this bastardized version of uh, even even the phrase Jeffersonian egalitarianism kind of got completely, uh, if it existed before, uh, reinterpreted within their framework, right? Um, this is something that we can do that those in it's our totally thing doable. can do. Um, totally doable, and it would probably be closer to the actual truth than what the new left did um, in of sort of. In sort of uh, uh, reasserting that you know America is not a conceptual nation, um, the founders fought to establish, you know, going back to the sort of the beginning of this of this um, um, pod, uh, the founders fought to establish essentially this city on a hill for. Uh, this is a paid podcast. So I think I can say this: uh, a city on the hill for the white man. Right. And that is that can is not say, can you not say that for free? <laughs> um, but it, the, the, the people don't like it when I start outright going into that. And I and, and by white, by white, I am, in fact, referring to um, uh, Mr. Sandbach's infamous circle. All right. Um, that he lifted from uh, Benjamin Franklin, which very curiously centers around the submerged landmass of Daughterland and what is now the North Sea. Yeah, um, see, this is one of the things I'm, I'm always, I, and you notice whenever, because I'm not real big on like Nazi nostalgia and that sort of thing, but. Uh, that's I mean, another, that's another thing. But uh, the, 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 the Doggerland, all of that, all of that old esoteric, very esoteric British Israelism and like, you know, pre-Christian mythology of specifically, I mean, it's like, it's important to remember, you know, we think, of, we think of America as a Christian nation and everything. But it's also remember, important to remember that George Washington thought he was a descendant of Wotan. <laughs> like, so, you know, Americana is also... I don't but, see this as contradictory. No, no, it's not. It's it's not, but it's only non-contradictory inside the context of something called Americana, which is, you know, if anything, it, it, it's kind of like the obverse or the mirror version of um, what de Tocqueville called the civil religion of America, which is like, that's the version of America that, that, that I guess the, the civics 101 story about America that, you know, we have, you know, freedom for all, you know, increasing whatever the, you know, whatever the psycho battle is. Um, that's the, the, the civil religion of the United States as it is politically understood. And as it's culturally understood, I guess it would, you know, it would end up the, the, that that would be what Americana is. Sorry about that, man. That was stuttering. I had to, I was thinking my way through that one as I as I as I. Well, you know, this is this is kind of uh, this is kind of commensurate with the um uh, with the primary uh, topic, at least of the the fantasy writing I'm doing because uh, I haven't found a better name for it. But almost the sort of writing of this American mythology into being 
which um uh, or 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 rather not not even necessarily like creating it out of nothing like just asserting what is already there in a different sort of context is one of the tools that can be that can be used to kind of um uh, fight this mimetic warfare in essentially reclaiming what america is and um you know i mean one of the things that actually that actually kind of stuck out to me about how neglected this concept of Americana and trying to frame ourselves as a sort of political um, group within the consciousness of America. Um, you know, one of the things that kind of stuck out to me as to how neglected that sort of uh, that sort of movement is, is when you posted on your telegram, um, these are all of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, right? Uh, however, many of them were hanged by the British as traitor. A couple of other them died in combat. Um, and you had all these facts and you're like, if you know more German philosophers by name, then you know signers of the Declaration of Independence, then maybe you're a part of the problem. And um, that was that was kind of one of the most poignant and microcosmic points you could have made that kind of exemplified this sort of neglect of the incorrect LARPing that is being done by American, you know, by guys in America. You know, there was this meme a friend of mine made a long time ago that's been posted around everywhere, but it's this meme. It's Squidward screaming at SpongeBob and Patrick, and the caption says, you are not a German monarchist. You live in North Dakota. And um, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the thing here's is, a fun, right, here, wait, here's yeah. a fun fact about North Dakota that a lot of people don't know. It's the only state in the United States that's ever had it, and it still does to say it has a publicly owned bank, the Bank of North Dakota. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Sorry. No, that's 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 very interesting. Now tons of um, uh, libertarians want to move to North Dakota. Um, <laughs> but um, no, but like you have people on this side of things, right, like who are Americans, Right? And I'm not I'm not one to speak ill of anyone's faith or confessional heritage. Right? I am, but America America is not a Catholic nation. Has never been a Catholic nation. Will never be a Catholic nation. Nor will it be an Orthodox nation. Nor will it be a neo pagan nation. Nor will it be any anything else other than broadly Protestant. With a couple yeah. of Catholics, we kind of let hang around because one of them signed our Declaration of Independence, right? Yeah. Catholics have been here since the beginning, yes, right? But they're they're always kind of looked at as this like funny minority that sticks to their certain like claimed regions in Maryland and in New England and in other places, right? That's the point. And so it's like when you have these people talking about like, oh, the American empire. Oh, America is the most pathetic country ever. But like, look at like Habsburg, Spain. That's, that's like real Western power or look at like Prussia or look at basically, basically all of these dead nation concepts that they adopted because they like their uh, national spirits and all, EU all of these countries we beat at wars. <laughs> and that's, and that's, that's the thing, you know, it's like, it's like, you need to be what you are, right? If you are born in America, you speak American English with whatever dialect you have with that. You had the American education. You generally have the American metaphysics, whether you believe it or not, right? We are not a fucking half. This isn't a hearts of iron four mod where you can put 
Charles Carroll in charge of the United States in 1937 and put like the descendant of the Stuart family and make America a Catholic monarchy. That this this isn't that. That's not it. That that, that shit doesn't happen outside of Hearts of Iron Four mods. And this is this is why I think the idea of Americana and understanding what it is and what it needs to be and the language you need to be speaking and the symbols and that you need to be holding up, the aesthetics. Um, you know, one of the I talked about this on a thing with Prue, but like I don't know if you ever played the game Fallout New Vegas, but there is a particular character in Fallout New Vegas, uh, Ulysses, that I think is actually the epitome of someone who not only understood what Americana was, but the power it had. And I know this is a fictional universe, but the power it had in a post-apocalyptic setting. He literally put the old world flag on his back and carried it around and and use that as a like, you know, every all of your dialogue you have with him. He talks about symbols and 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 um, uh, history and, you know, all of this other stuff. Right. And. This is this is kind of that's in that same vein, that's what we need to be doing. That's what an American right needs to do is understand the language of Americana, the symbols, the meanings behind those symbols. Well, you know how the everybody vignette. loves you know how everybody loves Huey P. Long. Everybody yes. loves the old Huey P. Long. And they're always trying to argue, is he a left winger? Is he a right winger? Is he a left winger or a right winger? And this becomes very difficult because you really in a lot of ways left and right are words that you use to describe things that are foreign to you that you need to categorize one way or another it's like okay do i put this you know okay oriented from me is this on the left or the right is it does it correspond to my left hand or my right hand um you know, huey long is like he only really makes sense if you think of him as an american uh, and you know this is one of these things that if you um if you listen, if you ever listen to the to the things he actually said that got him elected, a lot of people people are fam people are very familiar with the share our wealth speech, and the my first hundred days and this sort of thing. But there's a bit that he did when he was running for governor of Louisiana, and you can only run for governor. He's only governor once. Um, you can only run from go for governor of Louisiana once, and he was running in 1928, and he gave this little speech at a place uh, called St. Martinville, and which is, it was the middle of nowhere then, it's the middle of nowhere today, but they have an oak tree there that they claim is the oak tree that Evangeline waited for Gabriel under. And this is an example of the way Huey P. Long was able to stir crowds that nominally, because St. Martinville is not considered Huey P. Long country, he was able to stir crowds in a way and compel them to do things that they might even nominally not agree with or understand. But here he is, he's standing under this, 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 this oak tree that's called the Evangeline Oak. And he says, it is here under this oak where Evangeline waited for her lover, Gabriel, who never came. This oak is an immortal spot made so by Longfellow's poem, but Evangeline's not the only one who has waited here in disappointment. Where are the schools that you have waited for your children to have that have never come? Where are the roads and the highways that you send your money to build that are no nearer now than ever before? And where are the institutions to care for the sick and the disabled? Evangeline wept bitter tears in her disappointment, but it lasted only through one lifetime. Your tears in this country and around this oak have lasted for generations. Give me the chance to dry the eyes of those who still weep here. Now that is just an absolutely incredible thing. 
for somebody to have said. It doesn't even really say anything, you know, but it is stirring in a way. And if you don't know, there are some, but you notice there are some things you have to know to be able to figure out what the hell he's talking about here. Like, okay, if you're not, if you don't know who Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is, now you're done. If you don't know his, you know, if you don't know this story of Evangeline and, uh, and Evangeline and Gabriel, you're done. You don't know what the hell Huey P. Huey P. Long's talking about here. You just walk away from this, be like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about at all. But, um, and I think it's astonishing that a largely illiterate population in the year 1912, people in St. Martinville, they did, there, was, there was probably not a copy of, there was probably not a copy of Evangeline in the whole town. You know, this is the, you know, white, two generations after, you know, the Confederate twilight of the idols. These people have been living in poverty for, you know, two, three generations out in the swamps. They can't read. Most of them speak French. But he was able to make himself understood this way using this, this, for this, this, this concept, this, of this, this story by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow about Evangeline waiting for her lover, Gabriel, under an oak tree in Louisiana. And he parlayed it into like, you know, a despotic iron grip on the state for seven years and a seat in the U.S. Senate. <laughs> you know, this is the you can push people's buttons with this stuff, man, if you learn it the right way. Way more so than any kind of no amount of scholastic knowledge and no amount of no amount of theorizing can beat that message that was just portrayed there you know there's no uh, there's no amount of combining various you know world theories into uh you know it, it, into a, a party platform you know that's the reason you the reason you can't the reason you can't categorize Huey Long ideologically is because he wasn't ideological you know in any, in any meaningful sense he was too erratic to be anything like that but you can read this speech and like this man is an american and that was the basis on which he won you know on on which his success was was ultimately based and so like you know i don't care how good your i don't care how good your ideas are if you can't do what huey p long did there you never even win anything and however bad your ideas are if you can do what Huey P. Long did there, you're going to win. So this is ground that, you know, essentially has to be contested with if there is any any hope whatsoever of, you know, punch it, punching our punching our way out of the ghetto, you know, the 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 niche online ghetto. This is the if possibly the most important ground to contest It's popular among, you know, right wingers to argue about, you know, the various things that they're, you know, that should be most important. We should have, you know, ideology is the most important thing. We should have real, you know, Christianity, statement of faith is the most important thing. And I'm like, wow, it's actually just the answer. If you're, you know, if you're British, good luck. If you're German, good luck. I don't know. You don't figure that shit out on your own. But if you're American, you know, you've got this entire open book of and, you know, of in many cases, lived experiences, you know, you can go talk to people. My parents were alive in the 60s. I can go talk to them about what, you know, 
what it was like the day, you know, JFK was killed or, you know, or whatever, you know, you can, you can. Yeah. You before, know, before she passed, I did a lot of that with my, uh, with my grandmother who was born right. in 1939, who lived in, uh, lived in like Pissant, West Virginia or on Ohio on the border of West Virginia and then moved into the Shenandoah Valley. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, you know, remembering race riots that most people don't even know happened during the sixties and seventies or, or other such things like that, like even 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 minor stuff, even like when she talks about her, or when she talked about her hometown uh, before the Rust Belt collapse, and she she would speak with such glowing words about how oh there were three department stores, and you know everyone had an automobile, and and everyone knew each other, and everyone went to the went to and and these these were real things and i you know right. it wasn't it wasn't just 50s nostalgia it felt like it was it was something real also she had some really really hilarious racial opinions which i eventually got her to say which um uh, which <sighs> very Lord. much very much uh were um uh were appreciated by me and me alone um but the thing is 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 you know you were you were talking about Huey Long um there were there were two things i wanted to to kind of bring from that right when you talk about huey long you know in evoking longfellow and um uh, and the story of evangeline and gabriel underneath this oak tree right um to a population of people who may have heard the story through like you know through osmosis but never like read the longfellow poem didn't even read english or barely and I'm reminded of something that Harold Bloom, of all people, said uh, about um, – uh, he, was, he was talking about uh, – actually, he was talking about Robert Penn Warren in this particular section. And uh, Robert Penn Warren, who wrote uh, all the – first of all, he wrote All the King's Men, which is not Huey Long's biography. Um, and um, uh, But also, he was Poet Laureate of the United States several times and wrote tons of poems about things like Falcons and all this other stuff. And and uh, Harold Bloom wrote this poem that um, uh, Robert Penn Warren read out when he was at lunch with a bunch of other writers, and it was this poem about a falcon. I don't remember the poem, but it was it was very simple but very evocative. And Robert Penn Warren said to this um, uh, said to this group of people at this uh, lunch he was at, he said, "I wish I wrote that." But then Harold Bloom follows that up by saying, "And when you read good poetry." And when you, but not just read, but when you feel and experience and memorize and internalize and see it, you feel like you did write it. And that's something that I think that, you know, what you were talking about, that Huey Long was able to capture this sort of, this, this, this poetic rhetoric, this, 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 not, not sort of um, uh, bringing poetry down to the politics, but bringing politics up to the level of poetry and that i think is is a uniquely american thing i think i think you nailed the best bit of it uh that there there is a that i have left off until now which is that there's a participatory aspect to it and this is the way because you 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 enlist these people yeah you make them feel like they make them feel like they could have written that speech Mm -hmm. the things that they knew about you know um and i think that is probably maybe the best maybe the best another potentially best way to characterize Americana is that it's the, it's, it's the, you know, it's the tradition. It's democratic. 
everyone yeah, participates. Yeah. I'm, I'm, trying not, <laughs> I'm trying not to say it. I'm trying not to say it. I, I'll fucking say it. It's democratic. Yeah. Look, if all of look democracy, I, I posted about this earlier today. Democracy, you know, democracy is what is. It's what America has always been in the aspect of people vote for shit. All right, suck it up, get over it. We're not going to have some Oriental despotic monarchy over the United States like Yarvin wants us to. All right. Um, the second, the second thing I wanted to say about Huey Long, right? There's a Huey Long quote, and people all like neocons especially love to invoke this quote as, "Oh, look, Huey Long, he wasn't a bad man." And Huey Long, this Huey Long quote is, um, uh, if fascism ever comes to the United States, it will be wrapped in an American flag. Um, and I don't know in what context, I think he meant that quote as a, as a warning or something, but I don't think he ever I actually that. said that. I don't like well, There's a lot of, there's, that's there's, one of those, that's one of those. But again, who cares? Yeah, yeah who like, cares? Man, who cares? It's, <laughs> it's quote Huey Long. Okay. That's all I need. It sounds like something he could have said. Okay. Outstanding. Right. Um, but I see that as a commandment and not a um, uh, and not a uh, warning. If we want fascism, because we've completely redefined what fascism means, fascism is when you're cool, the cooler you are, the more fascist you are. Um, if we want fascism to come to the United States the way, you know, the way we have started to define it in all of our own headcanons as those things that me and my online racist friends believe, we need to find ways to wrap it in American flags, to um, to make people participate in the bringing about of it, to find evocative poetry and stories attached to pieces of soil or uh, periods of time or towns or mountains or or anything like that. This is you know this is this is what we need to do in order to sort of win back this um uh, this conceptual. Uh, this cultural, this um, uh, linguistic, this sociological, this historical, this metaphysical ground that has been conceded to our enemies for a very long time. This is all what we need to do is we need to find ways to wrap everything we do in an American flag and in American stories. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I mean, I would carry that a step further and say that, yeah, and that, well, not just wrap it in the flag, uh, you know, you got to find a way to believe it too. Yeah. You need to, you, you quite literally, you can't do it cynically. You just cannot do it cynically. Um, yeah. but, um, uh, but you need to, um, um, no, you need to gaslight yourself into being pro Republican, pro democracy, and also, um, uh, uh, pro native stock of the United States and generally pro the, uh, advocacy of America as a, you get, some wiggle, you get some wiggle room on democracy. Everything you, else is mandatory. You, you, you get you get a little bit of wiggle room on Protestantism too, but yeah. like like generally that's the whole thing. That's the whole package. Like America has never been anything other than that. Basically, wasps are real America. Get over it. You've been psyoped into hating wasps. Wasps are are you know with with our you know, Hanoverian German and Palatinate German cousins and Dutch cousins we brought over and like kind of browbeaten to speaking English, right? Okay, you, we kind of count those as wasps too, sort of-ish. Um, that's that's what America is. That is the American people, right? And everyone else, to quote, um, uh, to quote, I forget the character's name, but in the movie, The Good Shepherd is just visiting. 
Oh man, I love that bed. That's one of my favorite beds. It's also it's meant derisively in the film. <laughs> like it's not it's not a good it's not like it, it's like supposed to be a statement of why that you know that that particular version of America failed. I'm like, no, no, we do it. We we'll get it right this time. <laughs> We're not done yet. <laughs> Oh. The, the the shit libs the shit libs when they accidentally create all of our best one liners and bits of propaganda and vignettes, right? All right, well, I think I think that's actually that's a that's a good place to sort of wrap it up and end it. Um, unless you have any sort of final thoughts or anything like that. No, no, I could show my I could show my Substack. Yeah, well, I was gonna I was gonna get oh, to man. that. I just want to make sure you didn't have any. Uh, oh, call me an esoteric Americana. Yeah. Yeah, go go read his Substack. I know I know half of you fuckers don't actually read anything, but that's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, go read his Substack. It's 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 excellent quality, um, and all three of you who actually read it from beginning to end are greatly improved by reading it. Um, you're also probably going to see Mr. Sandbatch appear around on a bunch of streams in the in the future, simply because people now know who he is, and he's going to get a flurry of invites, and it's going to totally interrupt oh. his life. Um, <laughs> well, I'm 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 too combative for that, unfortunately, because I, I every every time I go every time I go on one show, I end up I, I somehow managed. I went on Prude's show the other day, and I managed to piss off somebody for being an, anti John C. Calhoun. And John C. Calhoun is literally my favorite American who ever like my so okay I'll that man my my so my ability to my ability to make people angry will increase proportionately with you know the number of people that actually that also want to listen to me talk so there is you know the the both numbers will grow but eventually the number of people who are angry at me will get larger than the number of people who want to listen to me. And I'm totally okay with that. This is this is how it's supposed <laughs> to. This is how it's supposed yeah. to be. It's always yeah. how it's supposed to be. Anyway, right. um, well, I think I think that's that's been a wonderful conversation. And um, uh, for those of you who um, uh, for those of you who listen, you are welcome for the free episode. This episode has been entirely free. Um, and uh, go tell your friends and go share it everywhere because this will probably be the single most important, at least conceptually grounding episode. I do in however long this podcast runs. Yeah, um, a tough one. And, and um, uh, now that now that all of that content has gotten out of the way, may you find foreign shores less appealing than your own.